the Bible says there's kind of two types of knowing. There's sort of knowing facts and uh, believing them to be really true. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're investigating the Christian faith, uh, you can know facts about Jesus, but there's a, a million miles difference between knowing facts and believing them to be true for yourself. And the Bible says that requires God to be at work in us and that we should ask his help that we would truly see uh, what it says. And as Christians too, we can kind of know facts, can't we? Know facts about Jesus, but as a song we just sung, sometimes those facts don't quite get down to the deep inner self, the heart. And so we become anxious and fearful and we don't really believe what we say we believe. And so we need God's help that we would really believe what we say we believe. So if you, like me, feel the need of God's help, let's just pray again as we come to his word. Our gracious Father, we thank you that we have these great and precious promises in your word. We ask that you would remove our ignorance, that we would know the facts truly and clearly. But more than that, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit and that we be those people who believe what your word says. Father, we come this morning perhaps with many fears and anxieties. And Lord, we know that our greatest need is to see how big a saviour you've provided for us in the Lord Jesus. His authority, his might, his power. That he is the Lord of our destiny. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our blind eyes or squinted eyes to see more of Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, a few days ago, I'm sure you've heard the news, 298 people's lives uh, came to an end when their plane was hit, we think, by some missile as they flew over a disputed area of Ukraine. And I don't know any of these people personally, although uh, I'm sure like you, I've been, you've been reading some of the, 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 the details about them. You've seen their pictures in the newspapers yesterday. There'll be many more pictures today, I'm sure. And heard some of the stories of, of the victims. Uh, I guess the British papers are focused mostly on the British uh, victims. And for the families who have heard this news, this is just you know a routine moment. Someone traveling has turned into this gut-wrenching emotional storm. How do, how do you cope with such devastating loss? Uh, friends of ours, uh, Brian and Holly, received a nightmare call a number of years ago now that their 19-year-old daughter, who had recently moved out to get her own flat, she'd been, she'd been involved in a car accident. She was a pedestrian, walking along, listening to a walkman, and an elderly man uh, suffered a heart attack while he was driving. He lost control of the car. The car mounted the curb hit her from behind, and in an instant, she was dead. Suddenly, they were in the middle of this personal storm that shook the whole family and all who knew Caroline. 
Now, people do cope uh, with tragedies in lots of different ways. But I wanted to direct you this morning to uh, an account that's helped many Christians. Uh, Let's read this eyewitness testimony of one of the disciples of Jesus. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and you'll find this on page 973 in the church Bibles. Page 973. If you haven't got a Bible, there should be a red book somewhere around you. If you grab hold of that and turn to page 973, you'll find Matthew chapter 8. I'm just going to read these familiar verses. Well, familiar if you've been in church for a long time. Then he, meaning Jesus, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. This is God's word. There are three things uh, I want us to notice, simple things really, from this passage. Um, I heard Dick Lucas speak on this passage and uh, his three headings have always stayed with me, so I'm going to use them because I couldn't think of anything better. So thanks, Dick. First thing I want to point out here is that followers of Jesus do not avoid the storms. That's clear, isn't it? Followers of Jesus do not avoid the storms. As we saw last week, if you were here with us last week, uh, in verse 18, uh, this text we considered, it was Jesus who gave the command to cross to the other side of the lake, to cross uh, what was called the Sea of Galilee, a large uh, body of water. And in verse 23, as we just read, it was Jesus leading the way. He got into the boat, and then his disciples followed him into the boat, And so when this great life-threatening storm broke on them on the sea, it was precisely as they were following Jesus. It was following Jesus that got them into this particular crisis. And uh, these first disciples, they knew this lake. They were fishermen on this very lake. And uh, they'd experienced, no doubt, difficult sailings on this lake before. It was famed for the way that uh, sudden storms could break upon it. But they'd not experienced anything like this before. The winds were so strong, the water was being whipped up uh, like a sort of a great earthquake. It's it's described almost like an earthquake in the sea. And and, and the waves are mounting up so that they are way higher than the boat. And the waves are crashing over and... These experienced fishermen knew that they were drowning, they were sinking, they were going to perish. And this reminds us, I think, that uh, Jesus did not promise that those who would follow him uh, would experience an untroubled, peaceful 
life without struggles, without difficulties. There are people out there that are trying to teach that if you have enough faith and follow Jesus, life's going to be great. I just don't see where they get that from the Bible. I think they get that from a fantasy in their minds. You know, you can see this even in the life of Jesus. If you turn back a few pages to uh, the end of Mark chapter 3. From the high of his baptism, see what happens next. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him... I am well pleased. And if we paused it there with the chapter heading, which we put in a lot longer, we would just say, well what, well, what a wonderful encouragement. What an encouraging day for Jesus at his baptism. But immediately what happens? Well, that same spirit that came upon him, 4 verse 1, then Jesus was led out by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And what's the devil bombarding him with these discouraging taunts? Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. See the voice from heaven. This is my Son whom I love. Great encouragement. Within hours, he's in the desert. And the devil is saying, If you are the Son. Well, there's, there's the reality for Jesus. And Jesus had been quite clear with the disciples. If you turn over to chapter 5, verse 11, that... Um, those who would follow him would actually have additional difficulties. Uh, 5 verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets and uh, the prophets who were before you. Did you hear on the news how ISIS, this uh, new sort of radical Islamic group, have, have said in Mosul that uh, there was a deadline and, and those who were Christians either had to uh, repent and become Muslims again or pay a tax or get out of there because they would face the sword. And what have these people done? Nothing but be loving, caring, Christian people. Yeah, there can be trials that come from simply following Christ in certain parts of this world. And on top of that, we are people who experience in this world, this world of suffering and sorrow, the same tragedies. And so Christians experience the same issues of sickness, disease, broken marriages, mental health breakdowns, financial problems, uh, business, businesses going bankrupt, uh, tragic accidents, the loss of loved ones, even children, just like everybody else in this sin-torn world. And so a rocket that brings down an aircraft flying at 30,000 feet is going to kill whoever's in it, whether they're a Christian or not. Those who follow Jesus do not avoid the storms of life. And remember, Jesus led them into this. You know, we, we would think, okay, when someone's become a Christian, uh, we just pray, Lord, uh, pray that they'll have an untroubled time, that, that, that life will go great for them. 
But quite often that's not the case, is it? No sooner some become started following Jesus, but they start having difficulties and troubles in their life, and we think, well, what is the Lord doing? Sometimes the Lord leads us into these very circumstances because he wants to mature our faith. He actually wants to reveal more of his glory to his followers. He can lead us into trials and difficulties to do something wonderful in our lives that he could not do if we were just sort of sitting on a beach, uh, sipping Coca-Cola, watching the sea break in all the time. We can see that in the surprising uh, verse in, in James chapter 1. We, we looked at James a few years ago. And these strange words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the first point. We don't avoid the storms. And secondly, I want to we see from this text that actually Jesus sometimes does not appear to notice that we're being swamped. You know, there they are. The, the waves are crashing over the sides of the boat. They're fearing for their lives. And what's Jesus doing? He's fast asleep. It's incredible, isn't it? He was absolutely exhausted from his ministry. From preaching and teaching to these vast crowds, these vast crowds who, who crushed in, wanting them to touch them and heal them, uh, who, who were always looking to him, always constantly around him. You know, we saw last week, verse 18, he saw, saw the crowds and he gets into, he says, I want to go to the other side. He wants to get away from the crowds. He is exhausted. And no sooner as they push off in the boat, he's fast asleep in the boat. And so this storm happens and it seems like Jesus doesn't care. He's oblivious. And so they have this growing fear. Now this can, this can be, appear to be true, I think, in our own lives. There are a number of places we see this in the Gospels where uh, it appeared to his disciples as if he didn't notice or care about their problems. The classic one is in John chapter 11, uh, where John records that... Um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the, 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 the brothers and sisters, the, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that, the, that Lazarus, uh, the one he loves, his friend, is, is sick and dying. And incredibly, Jesus hears the news and he waits two more days before leaving. Jesus appears not to respond. He appears not to care. And, and as he eventually uh, does the journey, Lazarus dies uh, en route somewhere. Uh, and um, as Jesus turns up to the family, they keep saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus would have been healed. You could have saved him, Jesus. But Jesus did love them. The, the text is clear. And he had a bigger plan that would reveal more of his glory by allowing the death of Lazarus than coming to heal him from his sickness. And I don't know, maybe, maybe there are people here today, I wouldn't be surprised if it was true, that are feeling exactly this, that you're in the middle of a great difficulties, and despite your prayers, it feels like Jesus doesn't seem to be paying you any attention. He does not care. 
That's how it appears to you. And I want to say to you from this text, this is not abnormal in the Christian life. Uh, In the evening, we are now working through some of the Psalms, the Psalms of Asaph, Asaph, I'm not sure how you say it, one of the t'other. Depends if you come from Wales or not. And um, we, we had the great joy last week of singing an unaccompanied psalm, kind of free church style. I think we're going to do that again tonight. So if you, if, you, if you don't like the band, come back tonight and you can sing unaccompanied and really enjoy that. But you know, the psalms are a wonderful gift to us because in the psalms we have God's inspired words of how we can speak to God. These are ways that God has given us, to us, ways that we can speak to him. Now, if, if the life for uh, the person of faith, the Christian, was to be sort of one non-stop, you know, fun, wonderful holiday where nothing goes wrong, then the, the Psalms would just be full of Psalms of praise, wouldn't they? That's all they'd have in them. But is that what you find when you read the book of Psalms? No. There are, there are many other psalms. There are songs of confession. Confession of sin. There are songs of lament. Of crying out in distress. There are, there are even psalms of complaint towards God. Now actually that's encouraging, isn't it? That's reality. Psalm 35 says this. The psalmist says to God, Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God and Lord. He's distressed because he knows God is powerful, but God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And so he says, Awake! Feels like God is sleeping to him. Psalm 44, Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Well, that's how it seemed for the disciples in the boat at that moment. I'm not quite sure what they expected Jesus to do. They didn't expect what he did do, that's for sure. But they woke him up with these words, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Now, the third point And I guess the main point is this. Our fears only subside when we grasp who is with us. Our fears only subside when we grasp who is with us. Who is with us. Jesus wakes up. And uh, as you read the text, it's quite clear. They sort of, obviously he's lying in the boat. And they kind of go down and shake him or something to wake him up. And he's still lying there, his eyes open, and he looks at them, and the storm is still howling around them. The the, the waves are still sloshing over the boat. The wind is just a a storm around them. And he opens his eyes and he says to them, You of little faith, why are you afraid? Now, those are puzzling words, really. I think I understand, don't you? Why they're afraid? You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Now, I don't think Jesus is upset that he disturbed his sleep. He's not upset that he really woke him up, prayed to him, called out to him. But he does seem to chide them that um, 
that they've allowed their fears to overwhelm their faith. The reason for their great fear here was because the disciples had not understood who was with them in the boat. And in this chapter uh, of chapter 8, there's a great contrast here between the the faith of the Roman centurion there in verse 5 and and where the disciples are at. Arguably, this... um, This non-Jewish man, this Gentile, this Roman centurion, um, he had far less evidence of what he had heard and seen about the facts about Jesus. And yet as he comes and begs Jesus to heal his servant, he says to Jesus, um, verse 8, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. With his limited evidence, he has sufficient faith in Jesus. He says, look, you don't need to come to my house. I don't don't deserve you to come. You just say the word and I know that you can heal my servant. And Jesus remarks, what great faith. I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now the disciples, in contrast, they had so much more evidence with their own eyes. They had heard so much more, seen so much more, and yet they hadn't quite put it together with the identity of Jesus. They hadn't, it hadn't tweaked, it hadn't been put together. They kind of knew some things, but they hadn't connected it with their brain about what it said about Jesus. And so with their immature faith, they are cowering with fear. Now we live in a world today where... Uh, we're in a world full of fear, it seems to me. I don't think I've met a person who hasn't got fears or anxieties for one thing or another. Even Christians at times can have great anxieties and fears. And it's a very complex matter, not easily sorted out with a, a few sentences. But the only thing that will cause our fears to subside is when we realize that there is a power greater than our fears. That there is a person with great authority who is bigger than what threatens to overwhelm us. Who is Jesus? Who do you think he is? That's the crucial question, isn't it? Who do you think this Jesus is? See, if Jesus is merely a carpenter, a teacher, a moral teacher of some kind, I mean, what good is he in the middle of a storm on a lake? I mean, mean, maybe they woke him up just to give him a bucket so that he would sort of try and bail the water out of the boat. I don't know what they were thinking Jesus was going to do. But actually, if that's all he can do, then fear, I think, is a very reasonable reaction to a situation like this. But what he did next was so incredible that they would never forget it. Verse 26, he got up. So he's lying down, he's saying to them, you've little faith, the storm's going on. He stands up and he rebukes the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Now when the wind stops in a storm, the truth is that waves can go on forever. The swell just keeps going. The wind may be over. If you're on that boat, you're, you're 
you're probably looking to over the side of the boat. What astonished the men was that no sooner had Jesus spoken the words, a great storm turned into a great calm in an instant, like that, no swell. He rebukes and they becalmed on the sea. Absolutely shocking moment. I suppose if the wind had just stopped and the swell had got, well, you know, the wind had just stopped. But the, the nature of it, that they are absolutely shocked. And as they get the oars out, because the wind's not getting them anywhere, and they start rowing, you can just hear them turning to each other saying, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. That's the key question, isn't it? What kind of man could calm the sea? Now here we are, 21st century, skeptical, secularists, miracles don't happen. These were gullible people who thought they happened all the time. No, 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 no. This didn't happen in their time either. This didn't happen in their time either. That's, that's why it's remarkable. That's why they wrote this down. That's why they went the world uh, preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. That's why we're here today. No mere man can do this. If you're not sure about it, next time you take the ferry to France or the Outer Hebrides, give it a go. I mean, it didn't have to be a big storm. Try a mild one, just a, a rocking boat. See if you can make it calm down. It would save a lot of money for the ferry operators if you could do that. No, you can't do that. There's a wonderful video on YouTube of a, of a Calmac ferry uh, with, with the soundtrack I Am Sailing, and you see inside, and, uh, and, and the boat's just doing this. And everything's sliding one end and back. Well, in a situation like that, just speak out the back of the boat and see what happens. Nothing's going to happen. This Jesus is the Son of God, speaking and acting with God's authority in the world. Only God can calm the seas. I read earlier Psalm 107. And that wonderful description of the sailors. Um, crying out to the Lord in this storm at sea where the waves mounted high as mountains. And it says, He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Yes, that's what God can do. God is sovereign over the world he's created. He can do exactly what he wants. He can hush it down just in a moment, in a second. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Have we come to understand the true identity of Jesus? What kind of man he is? There's a great and glorious mystery about Jesus Christ. He was truly human. You see that in this text, don't you? There he is. Do you see him at the start of the voyage? He's exhausted. He's frail. He's had a day of ministry and he's fast asleep. He's, he's like a baby who's exhausted at the end of the day. You can do anything to them. Put them in a car seat and they're flopping around. They're still asleep. Jesus is fast asleep. He's truly human. And yet at the same time, we see in verse 26, doing something that, that only God can do, speaking with great authority over nature and the physical forces that are around him. And he just merely has to speak and it's calm. Now how both things could be true, that he could be fully human and fully divine, is one of the great mysteries that people have wrestled with down through the centuries. But from the apostles onwards, this has been the faithful testimony in that, that in this one person of Jesus Christ, you have the two natures, the divine and the human, perfectly combined and united from his birth. This is God the Son come in human flesh. 
And the earliest views of um, the first century Christians were the highest views about Jesus. Bart Ehrman has just come out with a, another book uh, saying uh, how Jesus became God and so, some theory. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing you've got to face as you read the Bible is that the earliest accounts of Jesus have the highest views of him being God. Think about the book of Philippians chapter 2, where, um, which is written well before Matthew, and this is what uh, Paul writes of Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do we understand who Jesus is today? What you make of him will actually profoundly affect how you live today. If the disciples had properly understood who he was and who was with them in the boat, that this man is the divine son of God, they would have known that with Jesus that boat was unsinkable. He had come on a mission to go to the cross. It had been written that the, the, this suffering servant would, would be crucified on a cross. And in that, that boat, they were unsinkable until Jesus completed his mission. He had come not merely to save them from a storm. He'd come to save them from their sins through his death upon the cross. That was the mission that the Father had sent him on. That was the purpose for which he came. In fact, this, this scene is like a mini picture of the reality of what he's come to do on the cross. He had come to enter into the storm of God's wrath and it would be poured up out on him instead of sinners so that we could be saved in the storm of God's wrath. See, our fears and our anxieties will only begin to subside as Christians when we connect the facts of what we know about the character and the power and the authority of Jesus and we really believe that for our lives. Uh, we're not rescued from the tragedies that happen in a sin-cursed world but with Christ who died and rose for us we know that we can trust him to keep us even in death and bring us into his perfect eternal kingdom. And if you're here today full of fear, I hope that you have Christ, as it were, in the boat of your life. If you don't, why don't you ask him today? Ask him to be your savior, to be the savior of your sins. And to all who trust in him, who are here as believers today, let me remind you what the scripture says. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The longer I go as a disciple, the more complex I, I see we are and how frail we are as human beings. We believe things and yet we don't fully believe them, do we? The challenge of the Christian life is living like we really believe what we say we believe. Letting that truth sink 
into our hearts, into our minds, bringing our cares and burdens before him. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed today by life. You didn't have a good sleep last night. The challenges that you face just seem overwhelming to you and you're being swamped. I want you to remember today who's in the boat with you. If you're trusting Christ, Jesus is in the boat. He's the mighty Lord with great authority over all things. He'll stand up at the end of Matthew's gospel and as the resurrected Lord will say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples. And I'm with you till the end of the age. All authority. As we go out, we can trust him. Is he bigger than our anxieties and our fears? Is he bigger than what's troubling us? Well, look afresh at him. Fully God. Fully man. He merely has to speak it happens what a great saviour what a great lord and for those who are struggling to sleep who are feeling weak in faith I want you to notice something beautiful about this even though Jesus sort of chides them for being weak in faith he answered their prayer did you see that they're weak in faith but they cried Lord save us and what did he do he saved them Moses said to the people, Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. All who trust him, whatever storms they may face, they know that with Christ Jesus as their Lord, he will keep them, he will guide them, he will bring them to a place where there are no more storms. It says in Revelation 21 that there's no sea in heaven. Part of me is disappointed about that because I like the sea. But I think it's symbolic for saying there's no more storms in heaven. That's where he's leading us. That's where he's guiding us. Who wouldn't want him? Both in this life and the life to come, to have him in our lives. Our friends Brian and Holly still miss Carolyn very much. Anniversaries are still very sad days. But they know that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the seeming random event that led to Carolyn's death was all part of God's plan. A year on uh, from the date, Holly uh, posted this on Facebook. Can it be one year in heaven with Jesus? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who loved him. And then she quotes Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray.